Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. For Special Edition, I'm Paula Dagnan. This week we start off with Intercom's Frank Andrews talking everything election. Jonathan Marks, who is the Deputy Secretary for Elections of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Secretary Marks, thank you for joining us. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Frank? Good. Now, I don't, I don't know if, you, if you've even heard it yet, but Luzerne County just put out a statement and explanation about the, the discarded ballots. And if you didn't hear it, basically what they said is they had an independent contractor that was hired, right, who threw them away. As soon as they realized that they were thrown away, they fired the independent contractor. They immediately contacted the authorities. They immediately isolated the garbage, and they immediately turned it over to the federal authorities. Now, I guess my, my general question is, um, what, what has been the impact on the Pennsylvania election on this whole thing in Luzerne County, and what, what's your reaction, sir? Well, I, my reaction, and I did, I did see the press release um, that came out, uh, and, you know, I... I think the important thing to to uh, remember here is that uh, as soon as the uh, Board of Elections, the election staff became aware of the problem, they reported it. Um, and um, since that moment, uh, an investigation has been underway to determine uh, what the circumstances were surrounding that. And certainly the Department of State uh, is, is um, going to be uh, working uh, with the county and, and collecting additional information, um, you know, under under uh, our uh, our authority or authority of the secretary of the Commonwealth. But is the that is the appropriate way to handle a circumstance like that? I think the first thing I'd like you to clear up: people have been getting inundated with all kinds of mail asking them to apply for a mail-in ballot. And I believe they're confused that w- when they get these, if they respond, they're going to wind up applying for seven, eight mail-in ballots. Could you kind of explain that? Because I know you know what I'm talking about. I do, yes. And and, um, and there's nothing that, uh, that pro- prohibits uh, third-party organizations from sending out applications, whether they be voter registration applications or applications for a mail-in ballot or an absentee ballot. Uh, There are checks and balances uh, in place to ensure that uh, a voter cannot request and receive more than one ballot. You know, the first thing a voter should know is you should not submit multiple applications. It, uh, number one, makes work for for counties uh, at a time when they have plenty of work to do. Uh, and, And secondly, it's going to result in 
some number of those applications being rejected because they're duplicate applications. Uh, if you need to update your record, you know, we recommend that, uh, that individuals uh, reach out to their county and, and do that. But if you submit multiple applications for an absentee ballot or a mail-in ballot, you're only going to receive one ballot. Uh, and that ballot is going to be tracked using a unique identifier, uh, a correspondence ID number, to ensure that each voter is only getting one ballot and that that ballot is the official ballot. And when it's returned, uh, it has to contain that uh, unique identifier uh, on the on the envelope that the uh, voter has to sign um, before they submit their ballot. Okay, now in, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, must a voter request a mail-in ballot or, or do you mass mail applications to every registered voter? Uh, well, I want to make the distinction between a ballot and an application. Um, you know, as I said, there's nothing that prevents third-party organizations from mailing applications uh, to voters. Uh, but one voter can only receive one ballot. Uh, and that has to be done by application. Ballots are not automatically sent out to voters. Uh, now, we do, as a result of the changes um, made in Act 77, which was enacted last year that provided for this mail-in balloting option, you can be placed on a permanent list. Uh, and, and what is meant by permanent, um, uh, it, it's really a misnomer. It's an annual list where you can submit an application uh, and request to receive ballots for each election that occurs in that calendar year. Uh, so if you submit an application, indicate that you want to be on the permanent list, um, you will, without having to apply again, receive a ballot for each election in that calendar year, but then you have to re-up it or reapply uh, in February of the following year. And it actually requires the county boards of elections uh, in February each year to mail an annual application to each person who is on that permanent list. No, um, but it does require application. We do not automatically mail out ballots to people just because they're registered to vote. Now, if if the postage is paid on the mail-in ballot that that you send in there's no postmark we understand and and we're also you know, having all kinds of questions about postmarks since the postmark seems to be something that will trigger when the ballot can be counted can you address that sir uh, yes and that is a result of the recent ruling by the pennsylvania supreme court that uh, that would allow ballots to be received up to three days after the election provided their postmark um, by election day uh, and uh, I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of um, um, misinformation or misunderstanding out there regarding, um, you know, prepaid postage or, or you know, um, it's I think the technical term used by the U.S. Postal Service is uh, business reply mail. Uh, but the uh, several years ago, I believe in 2013 or 2014, uh, the U.S. Postal Service acknowledged that. Uh, a postmark uh, in many jurisdictions was relevant uh, in terms of whether a ballot was timely submitted. Uh, so they began um, several years ago postmarking or providing what they call an alternate cancellation mark uh, on all um, business reply mail that goes through their auto automated machinery, all election business reply mail. So it will contain a mark. Um, 
It may not look like your traditional postmark, but it will be a cancellation mark uh, that identifies the time or the date, the time and date that the um, that the ballot was submitted into the mail stream. Now, the, the Pennsylvania Republicans have tried to uh, bring this to the U.S. Supreme Court to overrule that. What would be the impact if the U.S. Supreme Court overrules the PA Supreme Court? Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hesitant to. I, first of all, I am not counsel for the Department of State, so, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not an attorney, and, and, you know, my, my take on these things is, is the take of a layman, uh, and, and I certainly don't want to, uh, you know, I, I want to be careful not to talk about ongoing litigation, uh, it, but, you know, generally, what I can say is any change that we have to make, you know, we are now less than six weeks away from election day. Um, and any change that we have to make uh, at this late stage is, uh, you know, is potentially going to, to cause confusion. Uh, and, and we're going to have to work with our counties um, to implement that change. So, um, it, you know, I, as an election administrator, the more we can avoid having to make changes to our procedures and, and the processes that are that are in place and the protocols that are in place, um, you know, in the middle of election cycle, uh, the better positioned we are to succeed. But I'm, I'm very thankful that we have, uh, you know, this has been an extraordinary election cycle um, for a host of reasons. Um, you know, we, we had historic election reform that we're putting in place, that we put in place for the first time in this election cycle. And you add to that COVID-19, which certainly was a huge driving factor in the amount of people that elected to, uh, to vote by mail, uh, both in the primary and for the upcoming November election. Um, but our county election officials have been uh, extremely diligent uh, they've been working very hard, and they've been uh, adapting as as quickly as possible to to all of the changes that have occurred just within the last eight to twelve months in election administration. Um, but again, any any time we have to make changes in the middle of an election cycle, it certainly puts additional pressure on on election administrators and uh and and potentially could cause confusion for voters uh and and you know what the department of state is doing to mitigate that is uh doing direct outreach to voters we've we've sent uh mailers to voters to explain um the election reform changes the new rules uh we've also been sending emails uh directly to voters uh for those voters anyway that we have email addresses for uh and and we have um you know, I don't know if you're familiar with our votespa.com site, uh, but we have a lot of great information, a lot of tools uh, that voters can use to confirm their registration, to check the status of their ballot, uh, to do a number of other things. Uh, and, and we'll drive out information to make sure voters are educated about uh, these statutory changes and any changes that might be the result of litigation as well. Okay, uh, John Doe applies for a mail-in ballot. He gets the mail-in ballot after October 5th. He has it in his home, and then he changes his mind, and he decides he wants to go to a polling place. Can he? He can. The General Assembly earlier this year, uh, in the same legislation uh, that provided for uh, the, that moved back the date of the primary to June 2nd, I uh, put a number of temporary provisions in place um, related to the primary, but it also made some amendments 
that that are permanent uh, moving forward. And one of those uh, would be to allow a voter in that circumstance to come to the polling place on election day. They have to bring their ballot and they have to bring the, the envelope that has the declaration on it. But they can bring that ballot to the polling place on election day, hand it over to uh, the judge of elections or the election official at the polling place. They'll sign a declaration, and then they're able to vote in person on election day. But to do that, they have to bring their balloting materials with them and hand them over to the election officials at the polling place. Jonathan Marks, Deputy Secretary for Elections, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He has said he's willing to take some phone calls. Let's begin with Ron in Kingston. Ron, what's your question for the secretary? First, if there's anything that they are doing to prevent people who suggested, um, you know, putting acid in, in uh, mailboxes to prevent people from voting by mail. U.S. Postal Service obviously oversees, uh, you know, the placement of mailboxes and and um, would be better equipped to, to the security of, of their mailboxes. Uh, drop boxes uh, that county election offices may provide for voters to return their ballots um, have a variety of, um, of security uh, security functions in place, uh, including locks. Uh, the drop boxes are designed to, you know, to insert balloting materials. You can't, you can't just put anything in. You know, obviously, there's a limited amount of space uh, available to put an envelope into the drop box. Um, a, a lot of the counties are are have people actually monitoring the drop box uh, during specific hours. Uh, the ones that are not staffed, that do not have county staff, uh, are, are in, in uh, most cases monitored uh, in other ways, uh, including, um, you know, uh, cameras and other, other uh, security features. They all have to be secured so that somebody can't just drive up and, and pick one up. And I think, you know, one of the things, um, one of the things to keep in mind about a Dropbox is it, the ballots are going uh, directly into the custody of the county board of elections. Only authorized staff um, who have been authorized by the county board of elections are out there picking up those ballots. They're doing it regularly, uh, and you you don't have to rely on on the ballot going through the U.S. mail. It is when you put it in a drop box provided by the county, or take it to the county um, to a county election office. Uh, or, or a location that one of the locations the county has set up for receipt of ballots, it's going directly into the custody of the of the board of elections, and I think that um, you know gives a lot of voters some you know additional reassurance that uh, they don't have to have to wait for it to to matriculate through the mail process. Okay, let's get another phone call in. Lauren Cummings calling from Old Forge for Jonathan Marks. Lauren, hi, thank you, Frank, and thank you, Jonathan. Um, I'm calling because as commissioner last uh, 2019. We had to purchase new machines by December of 2019 because we were told the old machines would not be certified, and that was across our state. How is it that Luzerne County used uncertified machines in their primary, and they have the same machines that Northampton County purchased, which is what I was told. I just want to confirm that with you. If so, how are they going to maintain that uh, machine when they had so many problems in Northampton County? Thank you. I don't. I believe that... Um that uh, Luzerne County used certified systems. We we actually um, 
certified a number of voting systems um, uh, prior to 2019, and all counties were upgrading their their voting systems, uh, and um, they could only choose from among those um, voting systems that were certified. So, as I understand it, Luzerne County um, rolled out their their new equipment. Um, uh, prior to the primary this year, uh, and that equipment was uh, tested and certified not not only by the Department of State but also at the federal um, level by the Election Assistance Commission. Scott in Dallas. That I have a cousin, uh, and he received five mail-in ballots. Now, uh, what would prevent them from filling out each mail-in ballot? submitting it and want to make the distinction between an application and an actual ballot um you know people may have gotten multiple applications uh to apply for a mail-in ballot uh but they would not get uh multiple mail-in ballots if they did for some reason um receive multiple copies of the ballot again there is a unique identifier on the envelope uh and the the county tracks um, that they issued the ballot. They can only issue one ballot um, for each voter that is built into the system, uh, and that includes a unique identifier. So if somebody did try to return multiple ballots, it would be easily caught. Um, you probably would not be able to scan in um, uh, any of the, any of the um, additional ballots so, uh, but I, I do wonder if, if what the caller was referring to is as applications. Now, uh, because wh- wh- unless there's some technical problem that results in duplicate copies of a ballot being issued, um, a, a voter would only get one ballot from the county. And and if if you know people have called and said, hey, my my uh, grandfather who died received an application, that would not be coming from the state. That would be coming from some independent organization, right? Correct. Yeah, the political parties send out applications. There are a number of third-party organizations, um, you know, voter advocacy groups that send out applications to voters as well. Uh, and depending on the type of mailing list, that you know, a lot of these organizations use, um, you know, use commercial mailing lists to do their mailings, and, and sometimes those uh, lists are not up to date. Uh, but you know, any communication communication that we're sending out to to voters, you know, we're using the information um, uh, for the voter that's contained in the official statewide voter registration database. Again, we do not we do not automatically send out um, applications for ballots unless a voter requests to be placed on that permanent list. Uh, and their county will mail a ballot application to them every February. All right, Max and Mountaintop. Uh, due to recent allegations of election fraud at the Luzerne County Courthouse, I requested a uh, permanent removal of the mail-in status. The form is Pennsylvania Department of State form application titled Request to Cancel Permanent Absentee or Mail-in Status. What guarantee is that? Because I've only received verbal confirmation of receipt. What guarantee do I have to vote unimpeded on November 3rd? And how much time is left for the remaining electorate, if they so choose, to be removed from the absentee or mail-in status? You would, 
uh, you would be able to confirm, and you can call our one eight seven seven votes PA uh, number. You can also confirm with the county, but you would be able to confirm that the county has uh, not only canceled your permanent status, but also canceled your your subsequent or your your request uh, for the ballot. Uh, and again, if for some reason uh, that process doesn't work and you get your ballot in the mail. Uh, you can take it to your polling place on election day. The law um, provides a specific process where you can take your ballot to the polling place on election day along with the envelope uh, that you are to use to return that ballot, turn that over to the election official, sign a declaration, and the election official has to allow you to vote in person at the polling place on election day. Uh, So that's the fail-safe. Janet in Mountaintop, what's your question? I work at the polls here in Mountaintop. My uh, township has been split into two districts. I work at one poll, but I have to vote at another. They won't let me leave the polls for the whole day while the election is going on. But uh, I'm going to have to send uh, a mail-in ballot in order to get my vote in. Isn't there any way that can be changed or, or made a difference? Um, well, I would, without knowing your exact circumstance, I um, you know because I'm I you know typically a a voter who is working as a poll worker would be assigned to the the ward or the precinct uh, where they live. Now, it's possible if you've been appointed by the board uh, to fill a vacancy, that, that may be why you're, you're in an adjacent ward or in a, an adjacent municipality. Uh, but you're certainly entitled to request a mail-in ballot. Um, uh, you're also entitled to request an absentee ballot because you're going to be absent from your uh, your municipality or ward on the day of the election because your your duties uh, as they relate to an election. But um, I, without knowing the caller's specific circumstance, I can't say what the, the exact solution is, um, you know, because she does have to vote at the precinct uh, she's assigned, and that's based on uh, you know, that's based on the, the boundaries of the of the precinct. Jonathan Marks, Deputy Secretary for the Elections. Thanks for the time, sir. I'm sure we'll talk to you again. Thank you very much for being with us. Some updates since they spoke. Pennsylvania's Secretary of State says it appears the election workers' decision to throw out nine military ballots in Luzerne County amounted to a mistake and not intentional fraud. Also, in Luzerne County, ballots will begin to be mailed out starting this week. Next on Special Edition... AARP's Pennsylvania State President talks about getting out the vote over 50. Don't go away. Welcome back to Special Edition. Next, Joanne Grossi. She's the AARP Pennsylvania State President, and she tells us what their organization is doing to help those over 50 feel comfortable getting out the vote. Joanne. It is going to be a, another voting wild season, and a lot of people are concerned. There's still so many things that are being said. Is there any way that AARP has been working to alleviate some of those fears? Well, AARP is making sure we get the word out to all Pennsylvanians, but especially those over 50, about the fact that there are a number of different ways they can vote and vote safely, and that includes by mail-in ballot, absentee ballot or voting in person. And just last week, the Supreme Court ruled 
that in addition to requesting that mail-in and absentee ballots be mailed to you, the County Board of Elections can set up drop boxes and satellite offices. Um, so there's actually more ways now that people can vote safely at these satellite offices. You can register to vote. You can request an absentee or mail-in ballot, fill it out right there, and drop it off. So again, a number of ways that you can vote safely in this upcoming election. We're still hearing, though, that a lot of people aren't feeling comfortable about doing that, but they are willing to go to the polls in person. So if they decide to do that, what are your suggestions? So if you're going to do that, if you're going to vote in person, we know that all county boards of of election have made sure that there's safe ways to vote in person. Uh, There's going to be social distancing. Poll workers will be wearing masks. Um, People will be having to stay six feet apart. And they'll be making sure the flow works in a way that everyone, again, can vote safely if they choose to do so in person. And, of course, AARP always at the forefront of what's going on with so many things that affect those 50 and and older. What do you see as being some of the bigger items on the agenda for those folks in this upcoming election in November? Voters over 50 have made it very clear to us, no matter what their party affiliation, that they're concerned about protecting Social Security, Medicare, and lowering prescription drug costs. So basically, the over 50 population are telling us they're worried about their economic well-being and their physical health. And so if candidates want to get the vote of the electorate over 50, they really have to tell us how they're going to protect these programs and strengthen these programs. I also uh, have had the the opportunity in the past to talk with uh, AARP, especially about the long-term care facilities. And what have you been finding people have been expressing as far as that's concerned, especially going forward now with the pandemic? People want to make sure that those that they love who are in nursing homes and nursing facilities are safe and being well cared for. And there's a certain things that we do care about at AARP. We want to make sure that there's regular ongoing testing and adequate personal protective equipment, that there's transparency through public reporting of cases and deaths in the facilities, and that we're requiring access to virtual visitation with the hope that some point soon we can get to safe in-person visitation. When we're talking again about going forward, what does AARP have planned in order to get the word out on all of those issues? We're doing many different ways that we're getting the word out, doing interviews, emails to our membership, um, media campaigns. So we're uh, in, you know, social media as well, any way we can to make sure that every voter over 50 knows about the issues and knows about the different ways they can vote safely. And again, because we vote, you know, in the 2018 election, voters over the age of 50 made up 61% of all voters. So we're the ones who are out voting. We make a difference in these elections. And so we want to make sure that everyone over 50 knows about the issues and knows how they can vote safely. And now, being the AARP Pennsylvania State President, you do bring a wealth of information after having served under former Governor Ed Rendell. Well, you're uh, you're right. I served for seven years in the administration of Governor Rendell. It was my honor and privilege to do so because there's nothing more important than the health and welfare of the citizens of the Commonwealth. 
Um, and so what I know from that experience is I know, again, that they care about their economic well-being and their physical health. They want to have livelihoods. They want to be able to retire safely with enough money, and they want to be able to stay well. So this election couldn't be more important. Just one more time to reiterate for our listeners who uh, may be hearing you for the first time. AARP, again, across the country, many people know it well, but what are you personally going to try and work toward, especially here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, when it comes for the the upcoming election in November? To get the word out to all Pennsylvanians, and especially those over 50, on how they can vote and vote safely. And again, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court came up with a lot of uh, decisions last week that affect um, how we can vote in Pennsylvania with new deadlines on when you can register to vote, when absentee ballots are due, and even um, when the ballots will be counted until. And so I really encourage anyone to go to votespa.com to get information about your polling places, deadlines, and or if you don't have access to the Internet, to call 877-VOTES-PA. And again, you can get all the information you need about how to vote safely in this upcoming election. Joanne Grossi, AARP Pennsylvania State President on Getting Out the Vote Over 50. And just a reminder, you can also check the AARP website as well as votespa.com and your county election office in order to get more information on voting in the Commonwealth. Now, don't go away. Next on Special Edition, Pennsylvania's Attorney General was in Scranton earlier this week, and you'll hear what he had to say on Special Edition. Welcome back to Special Edition. Attorney General Josh Shapiro in Scranton earlier this week announcing the grand jury recommendation for criminal charges against former Scranton School District officials for failing to protect students from lead and asbestos exposure. Each face, among others, several child endangerment charges. All have been released on bail hearings later this month. I think we can all agree that our children deserve to be safe at school, period. They should be safe when they take a drink of water from the fountain. They should be safe breathing the air in their classrooms. And they should be safe no matter where they go to school in our Commonwealth. And we have laws on the books to protect their health and safety so that what should happen is also what does happen. The subjects of this investigation Former Superintendent Alexis Kirian, former Chief Operations Officer Jeff Brazil, and current Maintenance Supervisor Joseph Slack repeatedly failed to protect students when tests discovered dangerous levels of lead in school drinking water and asbestos in school buildings over the course of three years. We are here today in Scranton to bring accountability on behalf of the people of Scranton for Kirian, Brazil, and Slack's recklessness, their criminal behavior that puts Scranton students at risk. Let me be very clear about something. Each of these three school officials had a legal duty of care to children. They had actual knowledge of the problem. They did nothing 
and at times they misled students, parents, and the public. Before I detail the timeline of this investigation, it's important for everyone know, to know that the harm that can be caused by being exposed to lead or asbestos, especially for children and young adults whose brains are still developing. There is no safe amount of lead in drinking water, according to the CDC and the EPA. Just a small amount of lead can lower IQs, damage the nervous system, bring about learning disabilities, impair hearing, and hurt a child's intellectual development. It can also cause birth defects. Breathing in airborne asbestos particles can cause life-threatening, untreatable cancers. The problem is so serious that there are legal limits on the amount of lead we allow in water and asbestos that's permitted in the air. Let me give you an example. Under federal law, the Asbestos Hazard Emergency Response Act requires school districts to inspect facilities for asbestos-containing materials, prepare asbestos management plans, and perform asbestos response actions to prevent or reduce asbestos hazards. In 2018, our state law was amended to require school districts to test all of their drinking water sources for lead or hold annual public meetings to explain why they chose not to test. If a school district tests for lead and finds more than the EPA's trigger of 15 parts per billion, the district must immediately put together a plan and have one in place to prevent children and staff from being exposed to lead-contaminated drinking water and to provide alternative sources of water. As our investigation shows, more than half the water sources tested in the Scranton School District contained some amount of lead two years after school officials first learned of the problem and took no action. Like the lead that was found in Miss Molly's classroom sink at McNichols Plaza Elementary. And three years after being discovered, more than 90% of the asbestos in 12 district buildings remained, like the asbestos in classroom walls and ceilings at Northeast Intermediate School. Today, I'm here to unseal a presentment from the 44th statewide investigating grand jury that directs criminal charges against Alexis Kirian, Jeff Brazil, and Joseph Slack for their willful disregard for the health of students, teachers, and staff throughout the Scranton School District during their tenure. With the help of the Pennsylvania State Police, who worked on this investigation jointly with our office, and based on these grand jury recommendations, we will be charging each defendant with endangering the welfare of children, and recklessly endangering another person. These are felony charges that come with penalties ranging from probation to jail time. The grand jury's presentment reveals a simple timeline for these crimes. I wanna detail some of that reckless behavior that we uncovered for you right now. First, let's go back to 2016 when the district hired Guzik Associates to test their facilities. The results, plain and simple, were not good. They had dangerous levels of lead and asbestos found throughout 
the Scranton Public Schools. More than a third of the Scranton School District's 298 water sources at the time had lead. And 22 of those sources exceeded minimum EPA requirements for swift remediation. These are high levels of lead that require an immediate response, an immediate response. Asbestos testing from that same year, again, back in 2016, identified 74 locations in 12 buildings that required urgent action. There is a federal asbestos standard that goes from one to seven, with one being the most dangerous. 22 of those locations scored a two, almost the most dangerous score you can possibly earn. We're talking about classrooms. We're talking about the cafeterias and restrooms, the places where children and school staff congregate. Kirian, Brazil, and Slack, well, they knew it was dangerous, and they chose to leave everyone in the dark. Not just the parents and the public, but principals and staff and teachers too. When a principal, get this, when a principal contacted Kirian about the ceilings in their school classrooms caving in, sending dust into the air, Kirian told him not to email about it and that they should only have conversations by phone. This behavior was so unacceptable and alarming to that principal that the principal actually took the step of blocking Kirian's phone number so that the superintendent was forced to document the deteriorating conditions electronically on the school district's email system. It took everyday people, whistleblowers, people who cared about others, to step up and hold these administrators accountable. We thank them for the concern they showed for our children and for school personnel. The second step in the timeline I want to identify you, identify for you is the summer break of that year, 2016. Kirian and Brazil held a press conference where they told the public and their staff that some sources of lead had been found and the problem would be gone by the time the schools reopened that fall. In fact, despite their legal responsibilities to act, they largely ignored the problem. And we now know that dozens of sources, including nearly half of the most dangerous ones identified in tests, remained in use, exposing students and staff to lead poisoning when school resumed that fall. Kirian in Brazil, well, they never even mentioned the asbestos concealed in 75% of these district buildings. Now let's go to the third step in this timeline. Years later, now required tests were performed back in 2018 and 2019. And it showed that even more water was contaminated with lead than before. And more than 90% of that asbestos that was previously identified remained in these school buildings. For years, facilities went untreated unfixed, in use, harming students and staff. 
almost nothing had changed. In fact, it even got worse as the years went on. So in 2018, 10 of the 22 water sources that should have immediately been fixed or taken out of service two years earlier were still at dangerous levels of contamination and being used by students, faculty, and staff. Nearly half of the now 303 water sources that Guzik had tested back in December of 2018 contained measurable amounts of lead. And 28 of those water sources exceeded the EPA's trigger of 15 parts per billion. Because of their deliberate inaction and their deliberate cover-up, dangerous lead contamination levels had increased 27% between 2016 and 2018. So listen, at the same time that they assured parents that it was gonna be remediated, the problem actually got worse. The problem actually got worse. Months later, these administrators handled the asbestos the same way. 2019 testing showed that 15 of the 74 areas got worse since 2016. You notice a pattern developing here, including one site that escalated to the highest danger warning for asbestos, a warning of one. Recall that it goes from one to seven with one being the most dangerous. Fully 20% of the asbestos issues had gotten worse, while 42 others were left unchanged in unsafe conditions. Kyrian and Brazil had a legal duty under the law to take action. Instead, the health of students, faculty, and staff remained in jeopardy for more than three years. Investigators told the grand jury that they were unable to find any mention of asbestos in Kirian's emails during this time. Ironically, Brazil had completed an asbestos building inspection training course and received an asbestos occupation certification back in September of 2016. He understood. Ignoring the first test broke the law and recklessly endangered the 9,900 students in their care. But what these administrators chose to do next was really shocking. Get this, after seeing hard data on how their inaction was harming students and staff years later, they chose to actually do it again and exacerbate the problem. And so that brings me now to Kirian Brazil and Slack's final failure to protect Scranton students or come clean about their cover-up. Just as before, back in 2016, they hid the problem and broke the law by exposing children to further harm. They took no steps to comply with the rules, to alert the public of existing issues, or to do their jobs. Then, in January 2019, Brazil forwarded 
the second set of lead testing results to Kirian and Slack. So now we're in January of 2019. Slack responded that he would handle the problem with the water sources by, quote, making sure they are all shut off in the morning. Kirian said that she would report to, quote, all of the board. Neither of them did what they promised. And Brazil, well, he never followed up and asked. Brazil took no action to remove, disconnect, or fix the lead-contaminated water sources and never actually even checked to see if the work had been done either. In fact, multiple principals in the district testified to the grand jury that not one water fountain or sink was ever shut off after those 2018 lead tests. The last insult to the good people of Scranton was that neither Kirian and Brazil, you ready for this? Neither Kirian nor Brazil told their successors that the district faced a public health and safety crisis because of the unmitigated lead and asbestos in the school buildings that they were about to take over. They left the school district and they didn't warn their replacements. In fact, it was our office, the Office of Attorney General, who broke the news of these problems to the new school administration. Look, I recognize that districts like Scranton, well, they face tough choices every single day. But here's the deal, folks. Whether or not to come clean and tell parents and teachers about imminent health risks to students, well, that should never, ever be a tough choice. That's a straightforward choice. Hiding the truth exposed Scranton school children to unsafe levels of lead in their water and asbestos in their air. And these administrators' failure to fix the problem broke the law. Let me be very clear about something. This wasn't just poor judgment, as some may say in the coming hours and days. It was a criminal act that endangered others entrusted in their care. While Scranton District has more work to do, once we notified the current leadership about these issues, I want to be very clear. They took immediate action. The district took steps this year to finally protect students and staff by closing several buildings and preventing Northeast Intermediate from operating at all until the asbestos abatement is completed. The district, I understand, will have more to say on this later and I won't speak for them, but I do appreciate their efforts. I think we can all agree we need our children to learn and grow in safe and healthy environments. I say that as your attorney general and as a father of four children in school today. While there are problems in schools, administrators are required by law to report them and fix them. And they have an extra legal duty to act. Every child should have clean drinking water and safe learning environment, regardless of their zip code. It's the law.
the willful cover-up of lead and asbestos problems throughout the Scranton School District during the former superintendent and chief operating officer's time in leadership was, as the grand jurors determined, criminal. To the parents, the family, the teachers, and spouses who've worried about the health risks in our Scranton schools with clean water, uh, it, it have worried about uh, the health risks at Scranton schools, we believe, I believe, that you deserve safe schools. You deserve safe schools with clean water and air, and you deserve accountability. And each and every one of these men and women standing up here today representing different branches of law enforcement, as well as the new leadership here in Scranton, agree with that. And that's why we're here today, so that the people of Scranton know that these administrators will be held accountable for violating the trust that we all placed in them. Kirian, Brazil, and Slack knew. And their silence, their cover-up, and their inaction will now have consequences. Let me be very, very clear. This is a very active and very ongoing investigation. And there will be more to come. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories, a production of Intercom Communications. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.